Greetings and welcome to the show. This time on the podcast, did something a little bit different. Uh, my good friend Matthew Willits, who was my director of photography on my last film, Calliope, sat down and interviewed me this past spring, actually. So this is a chance for me to talk about my work while having someone else ask me the questions. So, enjoy. What's up, Tommy? Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today is a special episode. Um, I... Matthew have been on the show one time before and I'm going to actually be uh, hosting and interviewing Robert on this episode because he has just finished his second year film um, which is what I had just gone through the process of last year about this time when we recorded um, oh yeah so I wanted to to kind of put the shoe on the other foot and, and get him to open up about about his process you know I know you guys care about your your lovely host, not just the guests that he has on. Thanks, Matthew. Um, so yeah, we'll but just, let's not do an interview. Let's not do an let's interview. Just, just but I just want to ask you questions. Okay, go ahead. Go. I, I'm just I'm curious because um, it's your first time in the studio, isn't it? Here since you've changed the setup, yeah. 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 It's, okay. It's, Sorry it's, for interrupting. It's, it's better you. than your old place. I like it there. Um, <laughs> it's more homey. It is more homey. It's older. Uh, There's less bowling ball sounds. I want to ask you a question that you'd probably don't expect and don't have a special answer for, and that is, I want to talk to you about your casting. Okay. And I mean, I can open it up there, but I, I w really want you to talk about uh, the difference in casting Callie versus casting Norma, and who those characters are for the people not listening. I mean, for the people listening, not not listening. <laughs> Um, so a little bit about Robert's film, uh, this setup is that there's a fella who is, is writing a, a book and he, um, becomes obsessed with the book. And I believe that, correct me if I'm wrong, you could say that he, the book, you can kind of using that as, as, um, he's cheating on his, his, his lady, uh, live in serious girlfriend with this book, and not with another person. Yes. And Broad, broadly speaking, right? Yeah, very broadly speaking, without getting into specifics about your story. You can actually give yourself a little more space. So with that mic, no, because you're 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 peaking. I'm popping. Pop, 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 Stop popping the microphone. Um. There you go. So, uh, yeah, that being the setup, I'd love to hear you talk about. Casting Callie, the real life uh, girlfriend, versus Norma, who is who is a character from the from the story. Well, as you know, casting a student production is fraught with a ridiculous amount of contingencies and scheduling conflicts, and it's not fun at all. I, I decided to go with OU Theater Division talent um, for the most part because. I honestly did not feel like going outside Why of not? the OU Theater Division. Uh, I really don't have an excuse. I mean, there's a couple different casting agencies you could do, but I loaded myself up with so much coursework, fall semester, spring semester. Per my suggestion. It was your suggestion, and uh, I blame you for everything that I get stressed out about right now. But I, I'd worked with the talent before. I'd seen the on-camera auditions. I'd seen them in plays. I had a better idea of what they were capable of. And also I could ask other people in the theater division what their temperament was like, um, what they were like to work with. And 
I mostly reached out to people that I knew had a really good track record of being collaborators. So part of the experience for me is if I want to learn how to be a good director, I wanted to be in a position to um, learn from the people that I was working with. So it was important for me to actually try to, you know, like getting Tim, okay? Because I've been, I've known Tim for a while. He's the first guest on the podcast. Uh, and knowing how he thinks about theater and how he thinks about performance and what kind of style he has. And then when we were going through um, possibly casting Callie, I knew that Callie had to have a mature presence. She had to have some stability to the way she presented herself. Norma, I knew, had to have some kind of youthful kind of spark, but that had to be balanced with the ability to play the character, you know, because there are a million, I mean, we, you saw the auditions, there's a, there were a number of auditions where I could see an actress who had the visual quality that I wanted for Norma, like, on, like spot on, and I reached out to them, but then when you look at the auditions, there wasn't enough of a there's a confidence associated with having been in a lot of productions and having been trained as an actress that you really don't get from a lot of 19 year olds, you know, to be perfectly frank. So I reached out to a couple different people that, and, and just met with them. And I feel like you can learn a lot from auditions. You can learn a lot from the send in, you know, the video stuff. You can learn a lot from hearing other people, but for me, I had to connect on a creative level with the people I was working with. So if I can't sit down and talk to you for half an hour in a coffee shop about the creative process, about what you've done, about how you like to work, um, if I can't see you getting excited about the process, then I can't, how can I connect with you? You know, because I think that the way I approach characters and the way I work with actors is on a, there's like definitely like an intellectual foundation. Like, I have to be able to talk about the process. It can't be this wild, oh, we'll go for it. Let's hope we get a good take. Let's play around with it. The way I like to structure things is to have structure. And I can't do that unless I feel like there's some kind of, if we're on the same wavelength creatively. Uh, so for this particular casting process, I mean, getting to sit down, because I'd never actually had a conversation with Ellie before, but I'd seen her in a lot of plays. And she always is, she's typecast as this very strong, assertive woman. So I knew that she had the, the strength capacity, the ability to kind of command the frame because she commands the stage, no problem. She commands every audition she walks into. But the challenge was being able to bring her to a place where she was vulnerable to where you could imagine her being hurt by the main character who, who has neglected her. Robert's talking about uh, when he says Ellie is referring to Ellie Clark, who yes. is a third year um, theater MFA here at Ohio University. Yes. So getting to talk to Ellie one on one, I was able to determine with her what we needed to work on to bring her physically down to that point because the performance had to be like I had to kind of work with her to get rid of the things that as a person serve her so well as far as you know charisma commanding a room um, physical presence had to bring that down to a level where it was believable that she could be less assertive and 
But the thing is, is like, it wasn't until I actually sat down and had a conversation with her about her creative process that I knew that I could do that. So you can just cast someone and hope for the best. But fortunately, you know, I got to work with her on a one-on-one level. Uh, the same thing goes for, um, for Annie Genusis, who played Norma. Because I had, they, they each auditioned for both characters. And since the characters cheated on one with the other, I had to be able to show a kind of flip side, some sort of like two sides of the same coin um, for the performance. And for Annie, who has amazing range, she can play well above her age. She can play below her age. She has, it's really impressive. You've seen the play she's been in. I mean, she's really talented. Annie Genosis also a third year in the OU MFA. Yes. Uh, but she was able in the auditions off the cuff completely able to play the just like over the top um, like exuberance associated with uh, kind of an ego validation that a writer might have or some kind of creative personality might have and it was just obvious as soon as she came as soon as we got done rolling the camera it was like oh come on like yeah she could play Callie but she, as Norma she has all of that visual spark that you need and then compared to the other auditions of some of the actresses um, I was considering for Norma they didn't command the screen and that's a that's a weird thing that it's really hard to kind of you got to because for theater there's a certain amount of fudging you can do with the performance because of just the proximity to the stage right but on film like the camera's right up in their face like you can't pantomime a different thing so it was i mean i, I think we got we were really fortunate and also your your lighting had a lot to do with how we were able to portray that do you want to talk about who didn't make the cut you know throw people under the bus no who's not that? who wasn't good enough i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, the, so the reason I open up with this question is because I think early on in, in making films, the the huge thing that you cannot account for is when you're you're when you're the writer and the director, you're writing it and everything is in your head, so it can be as meticulous and as perfect as as you want it to be, and then you start doing things like casting and you start doing things like finding locations, and these things kind of start to become more amorphous and are kind of up in the air and you have to remold and reshape these things going from um, just inside your head to to a, a 3d real space and I, I don't think we've I don't get I don't hear that talked about a lot and I think that's an interesting thing for people to hear about because um, how do you get practical in making these decisions how do you compromise when you how do you know when you're making a good compromise versus a bad compromise um and i think that's really important for people operating our level and um, just independent um movie making in general is is how do you translate that from um, picture perfect control in your brain and to to uh, the real world mm-hmm well, let's let's actually talk about the uh, casting the males. Uh, the, sure, the sure, actors, sure. I think that's another that's a good starting point. Uh, one other thing, though, there was one actress I really wanted for Norma, who, due to scheduling conflicts, wasn't able to do a screen test. And I'd seen her headshots, and I'd seen uh, two videos of her performances, and I thought, wow, she'd be really great for this. 
But the when I reached out to her, it was entirely based on her resemblance to the character I'd written, mm-hmm. not in the broader scheme of how's it going to work within this world. Great. And then when I did the screen test with Annie and with Ellie, suddenly it became, oh, this works for this. Like Annie works, really works for this world. And if I had gotten the other actress, even if she had been able to do a screen test, it's likely that Annie would have gotten the part anyway, just because it fit the broader picture of what I was trying to achieve. So you get, you can have that idealized casting, but if it's, if it's divorced from the story, uh, the world as a whole, then it's just, it's just not going to work. The other thing about the casting is that even if you do get the people that are best for the part, this is what happened to me. Like I originally wanted to schedule it to shoot three consecutive days in one weekend. But then my lead male had a previous commitment, which pushed because of locations that shooting to an entirely different weekend. So the only role that was cast exactly as I imagined it was Trip as Morgan, as the main character. And that was admittedly kind of stepping out onto a limb, which is something that Rafal talked to me about because he says you, he advised against um, offering roles without um, an audition process, which, you know, I'm a pretty young filmmaker um, in the filmmaking career, that is. And he was right because it didn't give me enough choices of things to look at to decide, oh wait, this might not work, it might work. But I, I knew Trip from, uh, he's in my screenplay class and he's a playwright. So I'd seen him perform, do readings in class as a certain character and I knew his personality to an extent. But it wasn't until I saw him at a Midnight Madness show where he performed a monologue as Henry VIII that I saw that he could play against type radically. And because the half the film takes place in a fantasy projection and the other half takes place in the real world, he had to be able to do both of those things. When I saw that, I was like, oh my God, perfect so i mean which it worked out beautifully but that was a real you know that was a it's a real risk to to hang your production on one one person and make all the casting decisions relative to one individual without really taking the time but you know i also felt the pressure of i gotta shoot quickly i've got a limited window here uh and the other thing too is the character of jack who's his idol that he looks up to the writer I originally wanted to have someone who was a little bit older, who had a kind of distinguished look, um, who was getting the attention that the main character wanted, but none of the actors I reached out to could do it. And I was having a crisis, to put it mildly, which is why I asked you to step in. So thank you for that, Matthew. That was a, a lifesaver. But it ended up working out because then it was... <laughs> it, was <laughs> it worked out because, you know, you have... You can have, well, the way I'd written the character was distinguished writer that the main character looks up to, that he idolizes, that he thinks that he could be better than. So then you you have this sort of, um, the dynamic there is a little bit different because it could be, oh, I want to do better than my father or something like that. I want to do better than the old timer. I want to take over and ascend to that position. So what did that, what did that become? Well, casting as, as, as a younger, (laughs) younger fella, um, really jacked up the jealousy quotient. Because then mm. it becomes direct competition. Mm. It becomes, wait, why don't I have what he has already? So there's an added layer of resentment with it instead of just idol worship. So it's not, oh, I want to take his position. It's, an, I want to take him down. 
Like he doesn't deserve that, which gives it's much a lot more negative emotions I think associated with that. So when you naturally when you're thinking of switching it to that dynamic, you thought of me. Yeah. I mean, originally, I would, yeah, it's it's not a comment on your personality. Oh man! But I but I was, you know, there, there's also you're taller than Trip, so there's the, I mean, and you look at the frame. There's a visual component there, you know. I think it's I probably thought you probably have like 50 pounds on Trip. You're a, you're oh, a much bigger guy. You're you're athletic. Yeah, but I, but I think it. I'm trying to think. Is it literally like a half a foot on him? More? Yeah. 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 He's, he's kind of a shorter guy. Yeah. So, I mean, so then you have... So, I mean, it worked, I think, in that way. If I'd had an older actor, if I'd had the distinguished guy, there wouldn't have been as much of a contrast. But having that extreme kind of visual contrast, and there were other little visual contrasts that ended up working out, like um, Annie had her her had her hair is dark. So mm. sometimes her hair is kind of like highlighted with like kind of sunny notes in it. Mm. But for this shoot, her hair was like this really kind of deep sort of chestnut color. Ellie's hair is a lot lighter. So I had a visual contrast between the two of them, which was great. Then there was a visual contrast between you and Trip as well, based on what you're wearing, based on your build, your hair, all that stuff was really, I think, played up beautifully with how with what we ended up shooting. But then getting someone like Tim, um, the character of Ernie, who plays literary agent, for the fantasy scenes, I needed someone who could play the just kind of big personality. Gusto. With, uh, gusto is the exact oh, word man. I was thinking. And Tim came, just rolled in there like a tornado and just nailed it. It was it was so exciting to watch his performance, especially with how complicated the camera movement was in that scene. That was that was beautiful. That boy's good. But what, I mean, all this to say that they worked for the world. The world I'd, I'd, I'd written, the casting ended up working out. And because of the, the uh, scheduling conflict with Trip, we ended up getting an extra day of shooting. So we had two days to shoot the reality scenes instead of just one at the house. And there's no way we could have done it. There's no way. Not we, there's no way we could have done it there's the no. way we did it. I wouldn't have gotten the performances I wanted if I had rushed through that. And the, the other thing, too, is that we, um, for the scheduling, the fact that we shot the two heaviest scenes on the final day gave Trip and Ellie time to interact enough of a way to show the contrast between the beginning of the relationship and the end. So, it, it, I mean, it worked out kind of serendipitously. I hate that word, um, but I think it really did. I was really happy about that. But yeah, casting is uh, such a strange process. I don't, I don't like it. I really don't enjoy it. <laughs> can change everything. It's tough. And then, so, so let's let's move on to another another way um, that this imagination to reality you know concept to to reality is is, is affected so you, so you're casting uh what's next locations let's talk about that i mean it's very similar in the way that it affects your vision vision oh my god uh it, there's a reason that word's overused the because project it's um so talk about that how, how do you how do you go about finding these places um that are gonna fit you're looking for a home for a, a live-in couple of how many years have... I was saying like five years. Five years that these two characters have been living together. Um, they don't have a lot of money, but they're, they're keeping afloat. So you've got to find a place that looks like within their economic range or mm -hmm. else we're not going to buy that it's their house. Um, it's got to be a certain size. It's got to have a certain look. 
Um, you got to find a, a bar that's going to be able to look fancy. Um, so talk about that. How do, again, from con- conceit to, to reality. Well, I mean, the, the first draft. And how accurate is it? How accurate? To what you were initially um, imagining. The... Okay, so for the house, we got really fortunate. Um, I have to thank Jacob Midkiff for connecting us with a really good location, uh, which we used on on your thesis shoot. I saw some things in the house on your shoot that I really thought visually could show the character's state of mind. And another thing that taking the art of editing class and rewatching like Ridley Scott films and watching David Fincher is that everything is about the characters, everything. The light, the location, the costumes, the music, everything is saying something about the world, right? It doesn't have to, not every director works that way, but the directors that I've really been paying attention to have a, go real, have a really good eye for the world. And I, I saw things like that one wall in the house we used had some kind of cracked plaster and looked like water damage. But it, was, it had this kind of like artful, rusty look to it. But then the other side of the room was clean and had a view of the kitchen. And it only became clear to me during the filming that it's like, wait a minute, if we position Ellie, the character Callie, on this side of the room, we're showing her space. She cleans houses. Here's the kitchen. This is clean. Then we show his side of the room. Looks more artsy, but also looks damaged, looks unsafe, looks... Um, rusty looks there's a little bit of decay there so by showing them in that space you're giving a visual cue to the viewer that's not not textually explicit but it's visually um implicit i think so i originally wrote that script imagining actually the the apartment we're in Mm. so i imagine this place being the actual studio I imagine the kitchen being the kitchen. I imagine the bedroom being the bedroom. I imagine it all in my living space. Problem is, it was the imaginary living space, which did the camera angles would not have worked. Mm-hmm. So I was imagining things taking place on the kitchen counter that we could not, there's no way we could fit the red in there with the lenses and get what I wanted. There's no way we could get an HMI up to the second floor. I mean, we could. It would have been a real pain in the ass. Um, and even in here, the studio, the amount of set deck it would take and the limited lighting we have would have been really hard um what else we needed a second kitchen location so the practical realities of also fitting the crew in here i mean we had a pretty solid we had like 12 13 people on the crew including the cast i mean that's i mean i'd had everyone in here before on your shoot that's a lot of people walking around your apartment so the practical reality of shooting in a in a home i mean not fun Let's, you know. <laughs> let's take a little side detour and, and just for people who, who may not um, always be on film sets. Yeah. Why is it so hard to shoot in a confined space? I mean, yeah, if we've got the number of, of crew, but in terms of camera, what's so complicated about it? You mentioned not being able to fit the red, um, but obviously we can fit a red in a, in a tripod. So, so what becomes tricky about shooting in, in more confined spaces? A variety of shots, for one. Mm-hmm. It's We even had that problem in the studio location. But um, aside from that, the way I imagined the characters in their perspective or respective, rather, spaces, 
required space. So I was imagining in reality, you seeing more of the space around them. And then I was imagining in a fantasy them being disconnected from the background, okay? So shallower depth of field and things like that. If everything has to be a close-up, you know, in the reality um, scenes that we shot, you're limiting the possibility of showing visually what I'd imagined of them in the space. So the contrast between reality and fantasy would not have been as extreme. It would have been mostly relegated to the lighting and the, the costume design. But by having a space that we could move around in, it gave more room for the art department to decorate. It gave more room for props. It gave more room for lighting setups to focus on certain things in the room. And you can't do that with a narrow kitchen. You know, also for blocking, you have this like really narrow plane that the characters can't move around in a whole lot. So it's less dynamic, you know. Um, Production-wise, practically speaking, where are you going to put craft services? You got to have snacks and coffee for everyone. Like, okay, am I just going to put that in the corner of my bedroom while we shoot everywhere else? Like, no, there's no way in hell. So it's almost like you're talking about film being like a holistic experience. Holistic? In what way? Like, is in the the unity of the yeah craft the 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 set deck and you know you're you're talking about all of these things working in tandem mm-hmm. um what a crazy idea well that is seriously this second year the classes i've taken and getting to talk to tom hayes and and really really studying other directors who are really good at it it's you're missing out on a huge list of possibilities a huge toolbox if you are not working if you're not having a conversation with your art director on every shot if you're not having a conversation with um the dp about where they're going to be pointing the lights to highlight something about the art design okay i mean if, if you don't have um your blocking and your props and your light and your set deck working together then you're wasting opportunities to tell the story visually. So, and I learned that on this shoot. I mean, I have to give a lot of credit to Andrea Swart because as the the art director, she gave me a ridiculous amount of options. She was always talking about color, talking about placement, talking about where things are going to be in the frame. Um, I always would ask her like, hey, what's, what's the best way? I would ask her, what's the best way to convey this feeling? And she would say, okay, his takeout box should be open with noodles hanging out of it. And hers, she should open it and close it and then put it back on the table. Because that's more like what their characters would represent. So then I'm talking to my actors about blocking based on what the art department thinks will visually convey their emotional state. So then not only do you have the words they're saying, okay, the text, you have the performance, you have the props and the art all working together. And then for you as my DP, you're positioning the lights so we have like more shadow on their face or less shadow on their face. Um, are we seeing their eyes sparkle when something happens? Are we seeing, do we have enough light on their face to get the glimmer of recognition when they see something else out of the frame? And it's all those little nuances of the performance that are accentuated by the rest of the departments. But it all starts with the character. Like if you don't, if you don't have it figured out that you wanna convey something about the character of Callie, if you don't have that locked down, if you don't have a list of, I actually wrote down a list of actions she would take, of places she would go, and ways she would react to certain stimuli. 
And I kept that with me in my production binder so that every time I had to have a discussion with the art department or with you, it could be like, okay, we need to convey this with her right now. And that informed the camera motion, everything. And so, you know, you can, you can do a documentary cinema verite style film if that's how you want to do it. But I, for the way I want to make films, I can only speak for myself. Uh, it all has to be taken into account. And that means your, your budget goes up, <laughs> you know, which um, I'll tell you what, for all the, for the budget on this film, almost all of it is on screen, which is great. I was really happy with that. Uh, but yeah, it, it has to be, there, there is definitely a unity of the experience. And that's why I think it's really important. I've been telling um, the first year is this, is take as many opportunities to learn the different jobs on set. Like w work every different angle, take all the classes, you know, because if you don't, then you won't be able to speak the language that you need to be able to speak to convey something. Which is why even though I don't want to be a DP, cinematography class was unbelievably important for me. Because then, because now I can actually talk about what things are doing. I could have the discussion of, okay, daylight, nighttime, tungsten, what are we doing? Can we flag this off the wall? Can we emphasize this? Mm -hmm. um, can we get a dolly track in here to get this push in on this? And what's going to be like, can we pull focus at this point to accentuate that? I mean, it all becomes, you're, you're giving yourself more possibilities and you have to make more decisions, which makes a little bit, it's definitely more involved type of process, but then it becomes, you're like a magician almost. A magician. Yeah, sort of. It's, oh it's like magic. It really is like magic. That's why I love the, the more I learn about cinema as a medium, as like a storytelling medium, is that the more it really, the whole, the filmmaking, like magic, the magic of movies is so true because you direct the audience's eye. You direct the, not only that, <laughs> you direct the audience's ear yeah. in the sound design. I mean, you, you have such this, this just amazing toolkit that you can use to, to craft an emotional experience for someone. And I think that uh, the more I learn about it, the more excited I am about the whole process. And it makes it more worth it. You know, like it makes the suffering worth it when you get to see someone react viscerally to something you put together. And I mean, I got that at the first year screenings with my film. The first time I've had a public audience for one of my films. And when you see people jump when they're supposed to jump, and when people look at you and go, whoa, what was that about? It's, it makes it worth it. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty rad. What were we talking about? I just. I love how excited <laughs> you are. It, you know. I, I feel. I feel like. You know. Like. I can't. I'm not gonna say proud parent. Um, but kind of <laughs> like a proud parent sensation because, uh, you know, from from here to to last year, I, I just feel like you've grown Im immensely. It's like you've been a big part of that. It's like it, let's, let's keep it on you. No. I no. Well, this and, is. And <laughs> let me let me get my parent moment out of the way here okay, because go it's. Ahead. Uh, you know. Again, this time last year, this whenever we did this last, you were like, I don't, I don't feel like I know lenses yet. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. What, a, what's a lens? Um, and now you're talking about, you know, like when to pull here and, and when the when the dolly's at a certain point and the lights are gonna go. Dun, dun. You know, it's it's just awesome. It's just it's, oh, it's so heartwarming. Yeah, it's, oh it's man, well, right, right in here. That's you know? what the whole. That's what I think that's what the experience should be, the film school thing. And it's really easy to get caught up, especially, you know, with the course load. It's easy to get caught up in all the minutia. But 
at the end of the day, it's about seeing that film roll on the big screen, you know, or wherever. Well, isn't it exciting that we even have the opportunity to do that? Yeah. It was really, it's, well, here's another thing. Let's continue the the casting discussion um, beyond just the the actors. Because, so um, Nancy Cartwright, voice of Bart Simpson, Mm -hmm. Chucky from Rugrats, she came to the Athena Cinema in September and gave a little chat about her film In Search of Fellini. And I tried to get an interview with her. Didn't work out. I was like, come on. Darn it. Anyway, I did ask a question. She called on me and I said, how does it feel handing off your creative vision to another director? Because she can direct the film. Mm-hmm. So she produced the project. She got, you know, she wrote the help. She co-wrote the script hired the director, hired the cinematographer, things like that. And she said, it's not giving away your vision. It's casting the right people to convey your vision. Mm -hmm. So the casting of your crew is just as important as the casting of your talent. Oh, yeah. And and when she said that, I was like, huh. So when I was thinking about DPs um, for the project. Well, again, I mean, last year, what did I say? And the first piece of advice I ever gave you was about yeah, pick a good crew. I think oh, is what you said. To that's me. all you can do. Yeah, that's all you can do. And and so one of the things, because because I, I haven't seen a whole lot of your work. I've seen I've seen your sixteen millimeter projects, and actually I think that's it. I think that's all I'd seen of your work and, and the stuff you directed. So I hadn't really seen. Um, I saw Corey's film. Of course, you shot that, correct? His film, the detective thing. Yeah. I, I, I lit that. Right. So, I mean, still. Matt operated. Okay. I'm not but talking yeah. about myself in the third person. I'm referring to Matt Love, who was also, yeah. I think, good on this. But yeah, he, he operated camera and I did the lights. But I was, I was, because there's a bunch of people in the film division who are really into cameras, really into lighting. Mm-hmm. And I was going down that list of, of the people. Okay, it, this is how it had to start. In order for it not to be an irredeemable student film, mm-hmm. you know, in quotes. I knew at first I had to have a DP who cared about being a good DP. You can get anyone to shoot your film, okay? And there are plenty of people who'd be willing to shoot it. I could shoot a film, okay? But my the this the spark that really gets me going is not lighting and camera work. It's it's the telling of the story. Um, it's the directing part of it. It's getting all the elements together. It's getting that that uh, alchemical like beaker together, putting all the elements in the right place to tell the story. I mean, I, w- I would argue that the lights do tell the story. But they do. Okay, but well, everyone's a storyteller, okay? You're, you're telling a story with the art design. You're telling a story with the sound. I mean, Absolutely. you can say it's all related. Absolutely. Holistic, again, that's it. Exactly. But for the specifics, as far as my contribution to the process as the writer, the best I can do is get really good people in other departments to ach- help me achieve my vision, and I want to work with the actors. It's pretty much how it goes. So I was talking to these other... Camera guys, DPs, people interested in, in the in the visual aspect of the creative process. And I could see their work, and, and a lot of them have really beautiful work. Like, I've seen beautiful work in this department. I mean, some of those films at the screens, I look at them, I'm like, oh, my God, like that's who? phenomenal. Some of the work that Matt Love has done, uh-huh. um, I've seen work that Cecil's done. He did he did a one-take for Rafal's class that looked really good. Uh-huh. Bruno shoots things beautifully. I mean, if you want to talk about... Um, commercial appeal, beautiful, 
uh, like romantic lighting and camera work, like Bruno's really good. Mm. So there's a lot of really talented people, but none of them communicate or, or think about film the same way that I do. So what I knew talking to you about filmmaking and how we approach, how we look at different genres and different ways to use light, you seem to be on the same wavelength as I am as far as what we appreciate, what we're attracted to, and how we like certain things. So just through our conversations, even though I hadn't seen a whole lot of your work, I knew that I could at least convey my ideas to you in an effective way. And then you took it and ran with it, which is great. And I didn't have to worry about it because I knew that you had the same kind of um, mentality as I did. And a lot of that was just talking to you when we were shooting, um, when we are working on Departure, you know? You're like, basically you're like, I'm gonna need someone who who is who is a sad person who can convey <laughs> that sadness visually, uh, and you're like, I know a guy. No, that's and that, that was, was that was it. me. That was, that's, you, know, you know when that conversation that started? That conversation started when we started talking about Nick Reffin and Bronson, yeah, and boxing yeah. and film noir, yeah, and I was yeah, like, yeah. I was like, ooh, good. That's where that conversation began. Now, doesn't mean I can't work with other DPs. But it was one of those things where even when, because knowing that you, you teach screenwriting, I could send you the script and you gave mm. me very brutally honest feedback. Always. And it was, it just seemed like a no-brainer. So, I mean, I think that, uh, and besides watching the dailies, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy with what we, what we captured. But yeah, it's um, casting the crew. And I also have to, to mention Savannah Heller being my producer. I mean, she just, she, she ties everything together and remembers all the little things. Um, so let's go back to locations. The uh, I knew off the bat after we got the house location figured out because there was a lot. There were a lot of options there. The the bar and the um, the bookstore locations were really really important because the bar is where most of the fantasy stuff happens. And the yeah, bookstore. Let's, let's is, get some story context for people. To start. Okay, so so this guy. He he goes to a book signing and sees his idol signing books, and that's me. Yeah, played by Matthew Wells. He an idol has a abomination. All right, settle down, buddy. Still in film school at the time of this recording. The the transition, like he sees his his um, his ideal essentially in this book signing session, and. When he starts writing his own story, he puts himself in that position. And then we see him as his ideal in the same setting, but heightened and romantic. So that meant that we had to have a location that could double as both a standard, hey, you might have a book signing here. And also this can be a luxurious sort of sensual version of the reality. Now, Donkey Coffee, thank you Donkey Coffee for letting me shoot there, um, has a lot of like great old wood tables. And they also have some wood paneling on the walls. Um, there's brick. Uh, the space has enough room to hang lights. The space uh, is just, it's just great. It's just a great little location. I've been in there a million times. It's a great place to have coffee. And then we were able to jazz that up with the art design. So I didn't want to, if I had started at a, like an actual like Barnes and Noble, you got to start flagging off the fluorescent lights. You know, you, you have to deal with foot traffic. You have to deal with, with, oh, are there, is there enough actual open space for us to set up our art? Are we going to be competing with the kids' book display? Are we going to be competing with the bestsellers? Are we going to be competing with the noise of the cafe? And we didn't have to deal with any of that. So being able to control the space was huge, and, and Donkey gave us what we needed. 
the other thing about the bar and another it's funny how I was trying to avoid all the student film things but we ended up doing coffee shop bookstore bar <laughs> like I mean did you did you shoot in a dorm didn't shoot in a dorm no but, so you're good but there was a lot of indie film things that you know ah, kind of show up it's fine it, I'd rather fall into an, an indie trap than an, an undergrad student film trap where uh, your whole movie is two guys playing video games in their dorm and then person three comes in and, and there's an issue. I mean, we could have shot in a diner. That would have been even better. Mm. Throw that in there and have one mm. of the characters be a, a waitress. Perfect. Which is probably going to happen in one of my films someday. Can we add a laugh track? Can, please. Can yeah. we? Yeah. I'd love it. Can it be ironic? No. No, this is genuine. This is what the American people want. CBS has proved this. <laughs> okay. Uh, Cider House. It, well, here's another thing. Athens, Ohio is a college town. Ohio University. Okay. It's a big party school. Biggest Halloween party in America. Something, some nonsense like that. So most of the bars you get on State Street are just college bars. You know, it's Bud Light by, you know, it's pitchers. The bartender ignores you because you're probably underaged. Uh, if there's a pool table, it's probably warped and not worth playing on. It's all about fun shots and, you know. Could you conduct the rest of the, um, the talk in that voice? As a, as, a, as a stereotypical sorority girl? Yeah. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think I could, I could do that. Mm. Could. I don't want to, though. Please. It's still my house. Shots. Anyway, yeah, shots. What's a fun shot? Whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a shot. It's a sip. It's, it's take, a neat. Take a little sip. It's neat. You, you enjoy it. Time. Maybe I'll give you a little drop of water in there. All right. Uh, open it up. So most of the bars on State Street, there are actually some cool bars on State Street. Um, some of them are actually divey in a really cool visual way. Now, filming in one of those would probably be a nightmare. So I wanted a bar where there was enough light because okay, in most of your bars you don't have huge open windows at the front. You know, you wanna you go in there and it's dark and you have the TVs and whatnot. Uh, the great thing about Cider House is these two massive windows at the front that let in all kinds of daylight. So if we're shooting daylight, we can make it look like real. It's going to be real daylight. We're not going to have to worry about kind of punching that up with an HMI or with the, the kinos or whatnot. And at nighttime, similar, very similar to Donkey Coffee. There's a lot of brick. There's a lot of wood. A lot of reclaimed wood and the whole space is set up to be a comfortable place to drink not a place to get them in and get them out and a lot of things that one of the things people don't think about is bars are designed there's a concept involved with every like eating and drinking establishment you go into the way the lights are set up what kind of chairs they have if they have cushions on them or not there's all kinds of little decisions going into that and cider house is designed to be a place where you enjoy your drinks the way the liquor is is positioned around the space, um, the way the lights are pointed at certain things, the way they have a um, the drink list is done on done with like different types of chalk on slate. It's designed to give you this kind of rustic feel. So I was able to get just like Donkey the contrast between the fantasy and the reality just based on selective lighting and highlighting things about the space that already existed. So in the daylight stuff we're getting all this light coming through the windows and we're looking at the characters and you can see the space, see how big the space is. But in the fantasy scenes, we're able to make it nighttime and then highlight, ooh, look at that nice grain on the counter. Look 
at how the space opens up. Look at where, you know, Norma walks into this beautiful Hollywood lighting and we're able to dramatize it in a way you can't in a, in a dive bar. You can't dramatize it. And also for practical considerations, I'm not trying to get two different bar locations to shoot in. Uh, anybody got a time for that? I Just to chip my two cents. <laughs> what was it like that? for you to, to light that space? Yeah. It, I, so, I mean, I, it's I, a great space. Cider House is, is gorgeous. I mean, the, the nice thing was the the bar, the bar stools, the booths, everything, that dark wood. I don't know enough about wood to comment other than its, its color, but it being so dark and then you know, putting warm tungsten lights on him just makes it even warmer and it just feels so inviting. So when we're shooting the fantasy stuff, we've got these the the great bar top. Um, we've got these bricks behind them that are all kind of a darker brown or an orange that warm up like that when you put tungsten on it. So it was just able to to really make him feel like he was in this this cozy cozy space and half of my work was done for me just because of what colors i was working with at cider house mm-hmm. so i mean that was amazing just to, to be able to like oh oh it's already here i just have to <laughs> accent it and and you know make sure that we're putting emphasis on what needs specific emphasis but i mean actually doing that um was not difficult just making sure again that we were shooting tungsten and then when we were uh, for the day stuff you know putting in the um daylight bulbs into the um, the kino flows you know what else is a really nice touch uh, was when you threw those uh those gels on the overhead lights oh to make them uh even more warm yeah yeah that was great yeah, it's just because the I mean those bulbs I think were already tungsten, but to warm them up even more so that again when Tim is taking this kind of celebratory walk towards um, Morgan and in the fantasy, you know he looks even warmer and it makes him feel more jovial. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, let's this is a good time to mention um, our costume designer, Halia Demio. I mean, did a great job of getting options from the talent because we were able to jazz up all of that color based on what they're wearing in the scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, giving the warmer tones to the fantasy stuff and the cooler kind of neutral tones to the reality is something you might not think about because we, we didn't make it drastic, but it, there was enough of it to make it like, ah, okay, we're dealing with a different palette here. So, yeah, that was... Again, Tim had that pink in shirt, and he's walking into that oh, warm man. light, and he's all smiles, and he's got reddish hair to begin with. It was all just, like it just, man, visually it was working just, for you. When are you going to start on a cut? This week. This week. Mm-hmm. I have to do my um, my screenplay reading right. Tuesday. I've got a scholarship deadline. I got to apply for, and I got two other things I got to do. So this is a really rough week, but I'm hoping by I'm hoping to be working on that by Thursday. It's exciting. Yeah, because I mean, I saw the footage and it looks great. I want to, I want to jump into it. It's, it's. I mean, last time I shot, I was just terrified of what I have. I mean, I had less control over the, the different elements of production, smaller crew. Mm. Uh, the other thing is, you know, my last shoot, I didn't know my crew well enough to leave things in their hands, so I was a little bit more of a control freak, which meant I wasn't, I was sleeping even less, was not eating properly and I I couldn't let go enough to just focus on directing the actors 
this time, Matt Love is the AD, Savannah Heller is the producer, you as a DP. I mean, I, I just knew, I'm like, oh, this is fine. I can just talk to the actors. We're good. It's a great, great feeling to be able to just focus on directing. And here's the other thing, too, about directing. is uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that most of the director's work is in the pre-production. Like a good, hefty chunk of what shows up on screen, you have planned way before you get there. So the director might look like he's just drinking coffee and talking to the actors on set, but all the weeks leading up to that shoot are meetings about the shot list, about you know costumes, lighting, casting, locations. Like you're constantly working on this stuff. You're breaking down the script beat by beat to make sure that you're capturing the action in the way that is achieving what you want to achieve. And you're dealing with contingencies constantly. And if you care about like the frame as much as I've I've started to care about the frame, then it becomes even more of a you know tearing your hair out. What was the most difficult shot for you? Most difficult shot. Hmm. That is a good question. I'd say Beth's kitchen. What shot in Beth's kitchen? The problem with that particular scene as a reality scene is that I wrote that scene as a bridge. Uh-huh. Not as a scene that deserved a lot of attention. Uh, so you're so, going scene, not shot right now. R- well, okay, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get to shot okay. after that. But like as far as, and, and this that was a great learning experience for a young director is that you can't treat any scene as if it's not as important as the other scenes, which we're talking about the holistic approach. Like I, I that was the biggest lesson I've learned from this shoot so far. I mean, I'm going to learn a lot more chopping it, but. I didn't give that scene the attention that it deserved. Mm. And a lot of that was last-minute location, last-minute casting, a lot of last-minute stuff going on there. But I felt so uncomfortable in that space because I had imposed upon Natasha for the location. Mm -hmm. It was a long day. We'd been up since 5 o'clock. It's the first day of shooting. I wanted to get out of there, Mm. you know? And that was – I should have just – bit down and and forced it you know what would you have done differently though because i i think seeing uh, what you have i it's think not bad i'm not saying it's bad footage no I'm just, I, I think that you'll be able to get what you uh what you need out of it i think you're going to end up truncating that scene a lot yeah and well, exactly that it's going to be really brief but it'll serve its purpose uh, as as a kind of a bridge. I do agree that, you know, every scene is important. If it's not important, it should be cut and not shot. Um, but but I, I think you're going to get what you need out of it. But what would you have done differently? How would you have beefed it up? I, I wonder. I probably would have given Beth more dialogue so that she's actually a character. She's she's more of a. But, <sighs> but, let, me, but let me ask you this, though, because what what does giving Beth is the um, the owner of the house that Callie is is cleaning. Mm-hmm. What does giving Beth more character do for your overall story, though? It would have given a better contrast between a life of that were were Callie, a life Callie could have if she was supported mm-hmm. by her partner, mm-hmm. contrasting with the life she actually has. Mm-hmm. That's what it should have been. It should have actually been a a that scene should have been the contrast between 
what Callie could be like, or what her life could be like as far as comfort and and the kind of income she has um, versus where she is now relative to the level of support she gets from her partner. Is it didn't it, I didn't it didn't occur to me while writing it that that's what it could be. It's only on reflection that I'm like, ah, missed opportunity. Well, whose story are you telling, Morgan's or Callie's? I'm telling Morgan's story, but I think I could have given it more depth. The reason I, I bring all this up is because I think that you'll find in some trouble that I had in my second year of film was trying to tell the, both the story of Parker and Mary. And by the end of it, I, th- I think it's still kind of split between protagonists. I think it still is kind of about both of them. Um, that's kind of what I set out to do. But I wonder if in hindsight, um, trying to put them on equal footing ended up hurting me in the long run. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But mm-hmm. what, what I always found interesting, which I didn't say in pre or during production, was I, w- I wondered if you were giving uh, Callie too much screen time. Really? Because you want us to... I think as as viewers, you want us to empathize with her because it affects the way we see Morgan. But we don't want to... I don't think you want to show us her so much um, that we get more invested in her than we do Morgan because Morgan is your protagonist. Right. And I think that as you go through cutting, I think you're going to find that she kind of edges in on his story a bit. That's my... That's my number one thought about your film right now. Hmm. Good point. Shots. Difficult shots. Um, the, there are two, actually. Mm-hmm. One's a couple of shots, but one's the actual shot. That shot of the fantasy world falling apart that mm-hmm. we did at Cider House. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a really interesting lesson in collaboration because I had a vision of the shot as a three shot with a slow dolly. You had a vision of the shot that was a dolly, but it was on a different plane and um, had different blocking. And I couldn't figure out why you didn't want to do my shot. I was like, who is who is this dude do you think he is? And it wasn't until I brought I, I consulted Matt Love, my AD, that I realized that it, they weren't dissimilar shots. It was just a different approach to the same thing, and one was more dynamic than the other. And and what ended up making it work is that when Matt told me that like, listen, your your blocking is not unique to that camera setup. We can you can take the same approach to your blocking. And just mold it to Matt's Matthew's shot, and and it can be the same shot essentially, just done. You know, you, you can combine your ideas. And as soon as he, he kind of explained to me, and then with you, the best way to do that shot, then it just became obvious that that was the best way to do it. So, justifying my sort of closed-minded version of it with the shot that you were like just adamant on getting, I'm glad that we went with yours. You know, I'm hitting him with the eyebrow wiggle. You can't, uh, can't see. But but that ended, it was but it, it was a great moment because it it. Another thing that was good about why I'm going with your version of the shot is that it was, 
a very visually distinct way to exit the scene. So instead of just having the characters leave the frame, we actually have the audience pulling away from the character. And I think that that, like on a psychological level, is way more effective than the way I had it. So that was really cool. And it just it came out just gorgeously. Um, the other series of shots was in the final, it was in scene 28, the big argument scene between mm. uh, Callie and Morgan. Because, I mean, I wrote the scene as them standing in a room arguing with each other, which is just, you know, this isn't theater. It's film, right? And when I had rehearsal with Ellie and Trip, Ellie brought it up. She said, are we just standing in a room yelling at each other? And when she asked it, she, I mean, she phrased it nicely. Like she was nice about it. But I thought, ugh, that's boring. She's going to stand with her hands just kind of outside their pockets going, So when she asked that question, I suddenly realized that we could change things with the blocking. She goes, is there anything in my hand? I was like, ah, let's, let's play with that. And she goes, where am I entering from? And I said, you're entering from the kitchen. She goes, do I end up back in the kitchen? And I thought, that's actually a really good idea. Because if we have you enter with your cleaning supplies, and then you, you yell out Morgan's name and then drop the bucket, we're, we're just emphasizing your position and your frustration with the blocking and with the prop, right? And if Morgan enters the scene, the confrontation from his studio, we have them coming from their you know respective places. I keep saying prospective instead of respective. I don't know why I'm doing that. If we have her entering from the kitchen, Morgan entering from the studio, we have writer coming from the studio, we have cleaning lady coming from the kitchen. They meet in the dining room where they share their meals, where we first see them as a couple. So the conflict, you have this like visual callback to when they were a, a functioning couple that is now being revisited in the same location as falling apart, way more dynamic. You've got and then when we decided to go handheld with the camera, well, shoulder mount, whatever, um, that just added to like the dynamics of the scene. And then when we show them coming back into the kitchen, it gave Ellie something to work with by like washing the dishes. So we have the blocking tying together with the flow of the conversation and the argument. And it was complicated. I know you, you did a hell of a job with that because it required like moving the camera around, following, sitting down. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty complicated shot. But I mean, what we got was just, I think it really just emphasized the actual conflict of the scene way better than having them standing in the dining room would. And that was just all started with Ellie's question, like, are we just kind of sitting here? Now, I added, what, two extra shots? Mm -hmm. Two extra shots? Two, kind of two and a half. It, we added a second part to a pre-established shot. But, I mean, it was, it was very much worth it. Yeah. No, it... it, it Worked out beautifully, and and when I was talking to Trip and Ellie, they're they're one of the things that they kept bringing up was like, give me something to work with physically. So when you have Morgan, like, okay, this scene he's writing with a like a cheap pen. This scene he's writing with a fountain pen. Okay, for the actor, writing with the fountain pen is going to give them something more dramatic to play with. You know, or hey, if there are dirty dishes in the sink. We have something for her to look at with disgust, and it's natural. She doesn't have to fake it. If we let her turn on the water, that's something too. We can we can give her. What's this? The toolbox. Same thing. We can give her more to work with to demonstrate her point. So, that was a great learning experience too. Which was, the, expression of the emotional state is not just the text. 
it's it's everything it's the shirt she's wearing it's the way her hair is it's how she's moving and uh i just gotta apply this to like a sweet action movie <laughs> with kung fu That's the, <laughs> with, with plenty of kung fu yeah so what's um let's see i want to take some some deep dives you know what's uh what is one way that that, that you feel like I mean, if there was, what's something that you you didn't quite get what you wanted? Again, coming back to this, everything's under the umbrella of this idea of concept to mm-hmm. to production. Um, did anything not go the way that that you necessarily saw it in your head in a bad way, and has that helped in, upon reflection for you to think about how you won't do that differently next time? Other than Beth's house. Mm. Um, I, Beth's house. Okay, I would have... So when we go, were going over the shot list mm-hmm. for the, ho- the home location, it would have been nice to have gotten in that location earlier to do some location scouting because our we were operating from our memory of the space, not from what the space actually was like. Mm-hmm. So that involved, oh, we got to move this bed. Mm-hmm. Oh, we've got all this junk in the room. How are we going to fit a camera in here? How are we going to get the tripod that high? Where are we putting a light? Um, oh wait, do those blinds open? What's that air conditioner doing there? There were all these little things that it would have been nice if I'd gone there with you and Andrea to really like break down what can we fit in the frame and how do we want it to look? Because you, you were right about this, the, the studio space, I think we did a really good job with it. I think that ultimately it ended up being, we got a lot of really great footage, but that ended up being much more difficult to work with than I anticipated because of how small the space was. Uh, so I would have I would have spent a little bit more time location scouting before the shot list or doing the shot list while location scouting mm-hmm. because when we went to Donkey and we went to Cider House together with the script we were able to sketch it out which meant that when we got there it was like boom let's just roll with it it wasn't a problem and since those were time sensitive locations we really were able to get what we wanted even though the house wasn't time sensitive I feel like we would have benefited and would have been more efficient if we had gotten some uh, location scouting in there. That's definitely one of them. Uh, we did have 38 shots in one day. So, Really? Yeah. Wow. That was a lot. That's a lot of shots. That day three, yeah. <laughs> 38 <laughs> shots. Well done. I was looking at it that morning like, <laughs> okay. Yeah, and we did. Okay, we did. We here we go. We, pulled, we, we got two extra shots that day. That's what's even better. We got extra shots that day, and we finished early on day four. I, you know what? On the day, I thought that it went for shit. I did. really, I did. Yeah, I, th- I thought after day three, I went. I was like, went home, and I was like, that was what a shit show. And then when we watched the footage like two days ago, I was like, huh, it wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was. Not bad. It's usually the opposite. Um, I think that's yeah. So locations. A little bit more prep with locations um, is ideal. I think, I mean, with, and I'll, I'll, I'll just, I have to keep saying it, considering the amount of time we had to work with and the limitations of the budget and the locations, I'm blown away by what we got. Very happy with what we got. Uh, I think the other thing too is with the, the casting. I really got a dose of uh, humility with assumptions about what would work 
and what ended up working as far as casting is concerned. And I really have to credit Rafal with kind of pushing me on that because mm. he was just, he kind of looked at me with this raised eyebrow, like you're really, that's, that's it. You're just going to offer a role. You're just going to, you're not going to do a longer audition process or oh. because I, I'm happy with who I cast. I am. I'm going to put that out there right now. Like the cast I got exceeded my expectations. But I feel like I probably would have learned more about my script and more about the possibilities of what to work with if I had had a bigger casting and audition process. If I'd had more screen tests, if I'd spent more time getting people from outside Athens to come in, I think I would have learned more about the, the potential of the project. What else about this shoot has humbled you? Uh, acting. My goodness. The... the Getting to work with people like Ellie and Annie and Trip, who came in, I'm not leaving out Tim or you, but I'm just, I mean, just those three in particular, because they were so just go, you don't huge. Need, you, don't need a, you don't have to qualify. Don't want to be, you know, I'm trying to be inclusive here. Um, they came in with, they came in off book with ideas, alternatives, options on time and never complained about the amount of takes they had to do while trusting us to make them look good, trusting us to put them in the right place to get the best shot and doing everything with, with full commitment is just, it's, it's the, the amount of vulnerability you have to, the, the, the vulnerability you have to place yourself in to get the emotional honesty from a performance is something that I can't imagine doing as a life pursuit. I mean, that's what they do. I'm, I'm incredibly, I'm just, I'm fascinated by what actors are able to do. Mm. Um, that's, that was, yeah. And it was also really, really humbling to, first of all, when, when they read the script and told me that they liked it. That seems like a, well, duh, they wouldn't work on it if they didn't like it, but to have, to no. have it, to have an actor, well, they might work on it even if they didn't like it just to get experience. But, when I got actual feedback from the actors about the characters they were going to play and when they were asking me questions about motivations and what this character means to me and things like that, and they, they were taking my writing very seriously as a collaborative effort. And I've never written something. First of all, this is the most naturalistic work I've ever done. I generally go abstract, fantasy, surreal. So having these actual character conversations that are definitely way more realistic or way more based in reality, or the day-to-day, -day, uh, or the everyday, H having people really engage with that creatively was incredibly gratifying and humbling and, and flattering all at the same time. So that was, seeing how seriously they take it makes me even more determined to take it as seriously as they have. And so I learned a lot from working with, with the, especially the MFA actors on this project. It was just, it was amazing. It really, it really was amazing. Great. Uh, why was this a story that you, you feel like you had to tell? Ooh. Okay. The story is called Calliope. Mm -hmm. I don't think we even mentioned that in this podcast. Uh, Calliope is the Greek muse of epic poetry. Mm -hmm. So this past summer when I was in Denver, I was, uh, I was watching the Disney Hercules film. 
and the muses play a Greek. They're the Greek chorus essentially. They sing all sing a bunch of songs. You still haven't watched um, Frozen, have you? I have watched Frozen. That's right. It's the wor- one of the worst movies I've ever seen. We'll come back to that. I don't right. You were watching Hercules. I think we should just uh, let it go. Stop it. I'm going to walk off this set. You did that on purpose. <laughs> you did that on purpose. <laughs> so I'm watching Hercules. And I see the muses. And I see, you know, and, and I'm like, oh, the muses. You know, like that, uh, and I thought, a muse is something that inspires you, right? Everyone has a muse. Like Tarantino talks about Uma Thurman being his muse or whatever. Um, and man, let's not even go into how corrupted and jacked up that relationship got. But... I was thinking about what inspires me. And I was thinking about how you can be inspired by people or by images and you attach qualities to them that they might not have inherently. So we do this all the time with with supermodels, with actresses, with singers. Um, There's a reason that the guy who plays a detective on Law & Order is selling you insurance. It's because you trust him. You know, you trust the character he plays on Law and Order, right? And then I was thinking about how I read an article about how every superstar has a three-year window where they're on top, and it only really lasts three years. Like Beatles Mania was a three-year stretch. Mm-hmm. Eminem was the only thing people were talking. He was the only person people were talking about for three years. Okay, then you had. There, there are exceptions to this, but the kind of there's like ebbs and flows. But generally speaking, you have three like Lady Gaga, three years of on top. She's still around, but she's not the it singer, right? Mm-hmm. So I started thinking about that and thinking that there has to be some kind of representation of that idea um, of a Venus, you know, or an Aphrodite, or in the masculine sense of like Apollo, the golden-haired charioteer that we look up to and since in our in our culture we don't have these actual pantheon of gods we just have archetypes that i think that certain actors and actresses and public figures fill for a particular period of time then they're replaced by another person that fills that particular archetype so i was thinking about calliope the muse of epic poetry and i'm thinking okay well if you have a writer who is inspired by a vision of a woman um who gets him to start writing how could that be what would that look like if he took it to an extreme so then i was thinking well is it about a writer and it's like okay well if it is about a writer here we go another story about a writer you know that's never been done before but then it became okay is the writer attaching is he relying on this particular image to validate his ego to validate the ego expression of his his writing identity, to validate him sexually, uh, is it validating him financially? Like what ways is it validating him? And then it became, okay, this particular thing that inspires him, that little spark of inspiration, he wants that to validate him professionally, okay? So when he's at the bookstore and he sees this woman and he's like, and she's giving all this attention to Jack the actual writer, the established writer, he's jealous of that and it inspires him to write a story, okay? The problem is, is that he completely forgets that the woman who enabled him to indulge this creative lifestyle, okay, is Callie. 
So his actual muse, who he's forgotten about, the actual source of his creative energy is, is the woman he lives with, who's cleaning the houses, you know? She's the one putting food on the table. She's the one giving him the space to indulge his creative identity, right? So he completely forgets, you know, the whole familiarity breeds contempt sort of thing. He completely forgets what brought him, you know, he forgets who he brought to the dance essentially. So showing that this woman he sees for five seconds in public, he attaches all the positive qualities of femininity and inspiration and art to this one woman, okay? Who might as well, might as well be Lady Gaga, might as well be, pick a celebrity, pick a supermodel, you know, Blake Lively or, or whatever. You've got, you've got some kind of vision there. Oh, Beyonce, okay? Beyonce represents all that is feminine and attractive and creative and sexual. Like you've got this visual vessel for that idea. So that's pretty much what I was playing around with. And I was also playing around with the fact that it's not real, you know? So <laughs> that answer your question? No, I was going to say, so now all that said, let's come back to the original question, which okay. is why is this a story that you wanted to tell? Okay. Because I, all, I feel that, okay, the one line in the film that was written from like a place of serious contempt, and I'm going to just say it right now, is when he says, um, I am pursuing my passion. I am creating something. And then he looks at it. He looks at Kelly and says, what do you do? You clean up other people's shit. What kind of a dream is that? I feel like we get, I will personally have been inundated. And I think that generally a lot of young people get hit with this message of like, follow your dreams, follow your passion, do what feels good. Um, Joseph Campbell always said, follow your bliss. And, and, I, and something about that just struck me as, as empty. As is like if you're if you're pursuing happiness and you're pursuing the good feeling of doing something you love, what if you can't do that? What if you're in a position where you can't get that feeling of happiness? What if you're in a position where like you're not getting validated? Well, then what's the point? That kind of leads to a sort of nihilistic way of looking at things, in my opinion. And I remember when I was following my passion, following my dreams. I kept getting shut down. I continually get shut down following my passion. So you have to have an anchor of something that's a little bit more realistic, in my opinion. And I don't think that following your dreams for your dream's sake is somehow noble. Mm. I think that that needs to be part of what you do. Mm. But I don't think that that can be the foundation of what you do. So this is meant to be a cautionary tale? Sure, yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I think that if you live in a fantasy world, um, then the real world is gonna is gonna fall apart. Mm -hmm. I mean, there it's like they had, what was that? Um, like American Idol. Like there are people that go on that show who really think that they are amazing, amazing singers, amazing performers. Okay, and then they get shot down by Simon Cowell. I don't know who's judging that show these days. I haven't watched that since like season two. Disconnected. Okay, um, yeah, you're the wrong person to ask that question too. Uh, but there are people who, who will just like cling to this idea in spite of all evidence to the contrary. And I think that that passion is important, but I also think that it's like... It must be tempered? It has to be tempered with reality. It has to. You, you have to live some... There's got to be some kind of balance with that, with practical reality. 
And if you don't look at yourself with a critical eye, you're more likely to fall into that trap of ego inflation, which I think is, is why, how I wrote the character of Morgan, is this just dramatic ego inflation. One woman smiles at him and suddenly he thinks he's the shit. And, and I think that that's, it's, it's kind of like an anti-romantic, it's a trap. I mean, I wrote it as a tragedy. It's, 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 it's a Greek tragedy, how about that? Um, but yes, knowing, but the muse thing, the muse thing, I still, I still think about that quite a bit. Mm. Because I was even thinking about, uh, I was thinking about my girlfriend mm-hmm. when I was first writing this, because I mean, I first, uh, I don't mind saying this uh, broadcast, but like I asked her out because I thought she was beautiful. I just saw her and thought, wow. That's how Amy first. That is a striking woman. That I shouldn't have. My goodness. And then, but I saw, but I saw it in a play. So she's on stage. I see her on stage playing this character, and I think I'm like I'm I'm smitten. I have that moment of being like, whoo, and you you know you wanna you wanna you wanna be around her. So then you know I, I see her, ask her out, start getting to know her a little bit, and I still just see this amazing vision of of beauty, right? And it took I think two months for me to realize that like she actually had some of the qualities most of the qualities that I projected onto her. But. But that's not who, that's not what I initially saw. So I, 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 I projected, oh, she must be kind, she must be fun, she must have great taste in this, that, and the other, mm. right? And then you, I get to know her and it's like, well, I don't really agree with her taste in music. I'm terribly sorry I said that. You know, um, there are things we disagree on. You know, there's all kinds of little things, but you have to have that, the initial facade of the projection has to kind of, you have to be patient and not let that take over. Because if you attach qualities to someone that they don't have and then they disappoint you, it's not necessarily their fault. That's your It's fault. not their fault, period. Not even exactly. not necessarily. It's, right. it's not their fault. It, it's, it's your fault for giving them, for, for, for acting based on a quality that you suppose they had. So it's, it's you. So I think I think that tempering that uh, is is incredibly important. I, I'm I'm really fortunate that my my girlfriend is beautiful and has all these wonderful qualities. I'm glad that it worked out that way. I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah, because um, you know it's true. Uh, but but I think that um, and that's where the story came from because if it was going to be a naturalistic, more naturalistic uh, film, which I think is kind of what you know, because Rafal comes from a neorealist sort of background of his film. Um, I wanted to attack or explore that theme. And initially, the first draft of the script, I had him falling in love with his character, and the character wasn't doing what he wanted the character to do. So while he's writing, he, he'd be seeing the character doing things that he didn't like. And uh, it just it didn't it wasn't working for me. So I made it more made it more about his relationship with the girlfriend. Okay. Well. I mean, first, I, I think that um, I appreciate you you being able to uh, explore things from your personal life and your and your writing and and tackling things like that because I do think that's far too common um, in young people, particularly in, in males, but I think it happens in females too that we do assume see someone assume their personality and then when there's that dissonance. Um, get upset by it and I, I think it's it's a fun thing to tackle so yeah um, <laughs> my, my, my question is I 
then you wonder that being kind of what inspired it and what's behind it all. I'm really curious to see the final product to see if that's going to come through. Me too. Because I don't, I, having shot it, I, I feel like, um, I feel like it's definitely there. I don't think it's going to be crystal clear, but I think it's going to be if someone were to actually dissect, you know, why he made the choices that he made. It, um, then I, I think I think that the content is is there, so it's it's good that you're not going to be handing your um, lesson to your audience on a silver platter, and, and rather asking them to engage uh, mentally. Part of that was also due to your advice or your feedback, with because the first couple drafts of the script were so on the nose with the dialogue. Mm-hmm. That it was just okay. Why make a film if you're just going to tell them exactly what to think the whole time? So I mean, we're writing it so that there was a little bit of subtext, which is something I still have a lot of work to do on. It's hard. Subtext is hard. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> so hard. Oh my God. Uh, Life is, Life um, is hard. What? Um, I think these are the big questions for you. You know, going into editing, I just want you to be kind of thinking about what. How do you want the audience to feel when they're watching your film? Hmm. Hmm. Skeptical. Skeptical. Mm-hmm. About. Well, I mean, some of the shots we designed were designed to be like like Norma's entrance to the bar mm-hmm. was I mean, it's designed to give you this like Hollywood entrance mm-hmm. of like perfect lighting, you know, perfect hair, makeup, all that stuff, right? And it's not perfectly lit, listeners. Okay, come on, dude. It looks we, we ran we ran out of time. It, it looks, looks okay. Great. It looks shut okay. up. No, six out of ten. Okay, whatever. Um, had I had listen, okay, when that, you see the shot. Dear listeners, you'll say it looks pretty good. But if I had had just fifteen more minutes and two more two hundred peppers <laughs> that were functioning, because dear listeners, on this day, two of our lights broke. Oh, that's right. Uh, the Filex power cord exploded, uh. and the um. The 200 uh, started uh, smoking. Mm. So I was left when we came to this this huge shot that I had been fantasizing over for the last since uh, I had come over the shot list. I was not able to to put every accent on it that it that it required. So more more of a victim of, of circumstance on on that one are you, are you done flogging yourself but um it's it's uh, that's why it's only okay if should you ever see the film dear listener the, the that's lighting, why the shot is only right, okay listen, the lighting of the shot may be six out of ten the effect of the shot is going to be a nine out of ten i think it'll i think it'll express what it needs to express but i want the audience to look at that shot and and marvel at its execution and beauty and 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 whatever we were talking about you but I think that that should also come with a, is this something that I should think is desirable? 
Is it real? It's a great question. I mean, and there, there are shots like, you know, we, we had to intentionally like dress Ellie down. We had to give Ellie makeup to make her look tired. We had to work on like she expressed like, you know, posture that was, you know, less than attractive. She was wearing clothing that didn't make her look good. I mean, like Ellie jumped into a role where it's like she had to everything had to be dialed down, like her personality had to be dialed down to this place where she wasn't glamorous or she didn't project any kind of authority or poise. And I mean, for, you know, as an, for an, an actor, actress to do that, once again, with the vulnerability, like my hat is off. Seriously, it's, it's, it's amazing. But even though all the visual representations of that character are, are muted, that's the ideal. So I, w I want the audience to be like, wait a minute, am I, if my visceral reaction is, uh, I don't want that, but then in its, let me see, if the visual representation is perfect, mm -hmm. but the actual effect is toxic, that's something you should be thinking about. Everything looks right on the surface here, but it's rotten. And then here, things aren't looking that great, but that's the best possible circumstance for where we are. And I, th I think that, yeah, that is just the facade. The idea of a facade is like, I think about that. I think about that kind of stuff constantly. I hope that comes through. I think that's another very good lesson for someone to learn. Hopefully my, my films can kind of express these, these big ideas. I hope that's, you know. It's hard, man. Cause you can't. Translating from your brain to the actual film is, is such the process is That's another thing too. That's really humbling is you can have a great discussion about the story and about what I wanted to convey, but like, did we do it? Did we get it? I don't know. Would it be better if I waited five years and did five other films before this one? Probably. I mean, you can only, you can only operate from your current level of experience. You know, David Claude Giovanni had a really good point. I was in his experimental uh, film class. Uh, David runs the Athens International Film and Video Festival. I showed him one of my, I showed him my first year film. Mm. And I had this conversation where I said, I came so close to capturing this feeling that I wanted. And I came just shy of getting this, this, and this. And I kind of want to edit it a little bit more, maybe shoot some pickups. And I kind of, I want to make it perfect. And then he said, or you take the lessons you learned from that film and apply them to your next film instead of looking back. I was like, wow, David, that is some sage advice. <laughs> There you go. It was great. That was uh, such a such a great little piece of wisdom. So thank you, David, if you ever listen to this. Well, um, I think I kind of hit my my big questions and things that I wanted you to kind of be thinking about. Uh, anything else before we wrap up? Anything you want to talk about? What was it like for you? The process shooting. Yeah, uh, shooting a shooting a bigger project uh, first time in a while. Kind of. Yeah, first time in. in Forever, actually. I mean, not a project of this size was my my first time. Okay, what was mm -hmm. that like for you? I mean, I I think um, speaking from again this holistic perspective, um, shooting your film will affect how I write in the future, and I think that it's important. And I would actually encourage you to try to shoot someone's film. Okay. Um, because the experience, uh, it's it's just um, it opens up your brain to to um, 
different ways of thinking about crafting a story, um, communicating something exclusively through visuals. Because there were times, I think in earlier drafts, I told you I was like, "Yeah, we can just we can cut this dialogue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This could get yeah, this can be a look." And even when we're sitting in the, the locations and we're shot listing, I'm like, "Yeah, let's combine these two things." And I think um, it's great to have that experience because you really see like you start to see what is visually necessary to get a beat across, to communicate a story beat or an emotional beat to your audience member. What do you need to do? And if you don't need to do things number two and three, then you cut them. And um, just thinking about the kind of the economy of a shot, um, you don't get that from writing you get that from that's true um from being a dp and and um that's such an important takeaway um what what should and can you convey in one shot what should wait until the next shot what does waiting until the next shot to cover this action do for your story um it's huge it's just fucking huge Mm -hmm. and i almost made it through the podcast without cursing um (laughs) And um, then also, you know, doing that for someone else's story, too. Because, you know, I always shot list and storyboard for, for my second year film, even though I wasn't shooting it last year. And then I did it for my thesis, too, um, for Matt. Um, and then I had helped Corey with his last year. But, but doing that wholly for, for someone else's work is is really interesting too having that nice collaboration and making sure that you're respecting what they're trying to convey and then think about the best way to to convey um, what they want trying to kind of get in someone's someone else's head in that way and saying okay they're not here for me to ask this question right now so i've got to use my best judgment and saying both um, what's best for the story and is that in line with their aesthetic preference and then trying to combine those those things um, but I mean we, we had so many conversations about it beforehand mm-hmm. I mean we had so many schematics and things drawn out that I felt like I was educated enough on what you wanted to where if you weren't around, I could make a judgment call and that would reflect well as something you would want. And again, it's that pre-production that you just yeah. absolutely have to have. I don't know how people can go into a shoot without without it. And people do. And, and are successful doing it. I, I, I don't, I, and I think that's just, a, that's a temperament thing. I think you and I probably have just a similar temperament when it comes to doing this kind of stuff. It's, it's like I, you know, I've said it once, I've said it a million times, I think that you're, the filming of the project, I think, should almost be a um, formality. Isn't that what Hitchcock said? Did like he? He loved the pre-production, hated filming, hmm. loved editing. My my <laughs> Hitchcock is so <laughs> bad. It's like I feel I, like it, there's a. I mean, I've seen I've seen like the the kind of heavy hitters of Hitchcock, but I haven't gone through his whole filmography. And I, I feel like I should. I've seen the big guns, and um, 
I don't know. It just doesn't get better than Strangers on the Train or Dial in for Murder for me. I, just, I love Vertigo. Those two are just so good. <laughs> Strangers on the Train is so good. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't go crazy for crazy for his work but yeah i think that's that's true if he did say that then then i just i mean i obviously agree because there's so much to think about all the, you know everything you've been talking about tonight with the the costumes and the location and the set dressing and and how can you possibly think again this huge um you know canyon that you have to jump across from um concept to reality how can you possibly do all that on the spot on the day? Uh, if you can, great. I mean, good for you. You're you're, you're doing it. Um, keep going. But uh, yeah, there's just so much to be thinking about at all times. And uh, but it wasn't. I mean, so it was. It wasn't hard. Hard is not the right word. Um, you were able to come into the project with a certain measure of confidence because we'd had so many discussions about what I wanted. Yeah. I mean, you know me, so I'm not, um, I, I don't, I mean, you're I'm, not jumping on every production that people ask you to shoot. No. Right. No. So, I mean, it's, I'm not yet, you know, I'm not going to be shy to, you know me, I'll talk about myself a little bit here and, and that there's not a lot of confidence in, in what I do. And, I took a year off um, from filming all last year, you know, um, because of some some personal life stuff that happened in my first year here. My second year resulted in me canceling shooting projects. That's why I didn't I didn't shoot anything in my second year, mm-hmm. um, because the the kind of rug of confidence got pulled out from under me. And then even you know I came to you. What, like two weeks before the shoot, yeah, and gave Robert a, a heart attack because I, I, I think I made it sound like I wasn't going to shoot his project for yeah for a couple minutes. Do you feel like are you feeling more confident having gone through the process? Oh, absolutely. Good. I mean, I came out the other side with some good looking, some good looking stuff. There's some good looking stuff in I told, this I told in this you. film, dear listeners, um, that I'm actually really proud of. And then, of course, there's a lot that that is certainly wanting as well. Um, mm-hmm. There's some flat-out like bad shots, too. But I think, um, you know, it is a learning process. And, and I kind of now regret uh, last year letting myself uh, be held down and, and not shooting uh, the projects that I was lined up to shoot. Yeah, better late than never, though. Yeah, yeah. I just feel, I just feel lucky that I got you, oh. got you to shoot the film. Oh, because now people are people are like you know looking over, looking over your shoulder on my set, going like, "Ooh, I wonder if he'll shoot my film." Like, "Ooh, he looks like he knows what he's doing." Ooh, I wonder if I can get him. Robert, how did you know that he shot film? Yeah, it's the secret. People are now coming to me secret. asking me like, "You think you think maybe he'd shoot my film?" I'm like, "You have to ask him." Like, like, I don't know. And you say, "No, no, he won't shoot your film. He's not interested <laughs> in your story." Do you like um, do you like top heavy, uh, noir and horror? Horror borrowed lighting. Gordon, no, Gordon Willis. Then, <laughs> then Willis is not the man for your shoot. Yeah, no, but it's. I'm. I'm really glad you were. You're on the shoot because it was. It was also cool because because of how much directing you've done and and screenwriting you've done. You were giving me suggestions on how to work with the actors, 
so it was it was great that you could give me like little nudges on how to get a better shot mm. um, based on the performance because you were you were seeing possibilities that I wasn't seeing. So that was that was really helpful for me as well. I mean, there were even times where I'd look at Matt Love and Matt would be like, "Do this, do this," and so like, but it was always respectfully. It was always after the shot. It was always when it was like, "Hey, let's have a little powwow." So. Yeah. I mean, just having having people on my core team that could contribute beyond just what their job description was was also incredibly invaluable. That was that was great. Yeah, I mean, we're all still learning, and have so so much more to learn. Um, and um, I'm just glad to do it. And and sad that my my tenure here is uh, coming to an end. I graduate in in May, and uh, I'm off to, you know greener pastures the great beyond yeah so we'll, we'll, we'll see if it uh, yeah what a what a what an experience film school is yeah you glad to be here yes <laughs> most of the time most I mean, of the time it's, it's you're, you're getting paid to go to school robert yeah that is true um that is true there, i mean there are things and yeah, there's some classes where i, I you know, i'm like why did i choose to take this class but at the same time, all of it, e- even the classes that I don't enjoy, I am mm. still learning something. Mm-hmm. Well, so, there you go. So it's never, it's never a complete wash. Mm-hmm. It's never a wash. Uh, also, being in film school and not let me rephrase that in my mind before speaking it. Being in film school is also reminding me of what I really do want to study which is things that are not related to filmmaking Mm. non-filmmaking things that I'm interested in are suddenly popping up because my brain isn't occupied with um you know like before I was here I was a carpenter so it's like okay if I'm not worrying about all the little daily minutiae of that particular job what would I be doing so now that I'm in this academic environment, it's like, okay, if I don't like this particular class, what would I rather be studying than mm-hmm. this particular class? And then little things are popping up. So I mean it's I mean, stage combat's just like one of the one of the really cool classes I've gotten to take. Remind me of your Monday, Wednesday nights now. Monday, Wednesday nights I work. That's, oh, that's right. VR. That's right. Monday, Wednesday mornings are uh horror film narratology. And you said you're not gonna you're not going to start boxing with me because you think it's going to conflict with your, with my stage combat your training. Stage combat training. It's I first d- of all, I don't. I disagree. Are you kidding me? No, I think, Dude, I casting, think you're smart enough, man. To no, nah, it's not that simple. Because casting your energy and the training involved, it's it's you are when you're boxing, you're you're scoring points, you're making contact, yeah. you are it's cause effect. Stage combat is about working with your partner to be as safe as possible to act something, to not actually do it, okay? And I've seen some people in that class. I've had seen partners in that class that are incredibly dangerous but because not, they don't take it people, seriously. Though. I know, but also I'm getting to the point, I'm at the point, I'm not even getting there, I'm at the point where the only things I can add to what I'm doing right now have to be subtractions. It, I, I can't add anything else. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing too much already and, and it's, it's uh. I mean, I'm sure, you know, thesis year is going to be less burdensome because I can just focus on my thesis. But yeah, buddy. for right now, I mean, I'm, I'm getting pulled in like five different directions and it's not fun. You've like set it. yourself up for success, my friend. Oh, thank you. 
The proof will be in the pudding, as they say. Mm. Mm. But do continue. I mean, so you're done with classes this year, right? Done with uh, requirements, yes. Okay. I mean, great. So I would recommend doing what I did and seriously continue to take advantage of of the theater division. That's one of the things uh, because I need to get more – I need to learn more about the acting – process and i need to learn more about just um drama mm. just the art form i mean then i think i think i need to take some some more theater classes just to get a better understanding of that part of the process because i was imagining before before this project i could always a lot of times i can see i can imagine a future version of myself being good at something i'm pursuing and that's something to kind of aim for like i can see a version of myself that's really good at um, stage fencing. Okay, mm-hmm. I can I can actually imagine that version of myself. And then every day I practice with the swords, I'm getting closer to that version of myself that I think is going to be a really good stage combat practitioner. One of the things that I could not see before this project was being good at working with actors. I could not imagine what Robert being good working with actors looked like. And after working with Ellie and Tim and Trip and Annie and you. Um, mostly Ellie because she gave me the most uh, direct lessons. I can I I got the first glimpse of what it would look like to be good at working with actors. So now I want to really explore that and really build that part of my uh, my arsenal. Great. So I'm gonna have to do that next year. And no, I mean I'm, I'm still doing it. You know, it's just that's something that I know now I have the capacity for that I didn't know I had the capacity for before this project. Hmm. Well. Um, to wrap things up here, what one piece of advice uh, would you leave um, new and uh, fresh, hungry, aspiring filmmakers with from this project? What number one piece of advice would you leave them with? Hmm. Ah, that's a tough one. Yeah, it really comes down to surround yourself with good people. Not even just good people, competent people. That's that's the real thing. When I showed up at Donkey Coffee at 5.45 a.m. and there were people that beat me to the set, my heart just was overwhelmed with joy. I was just, I couldn't believe that I had a group of people who were there before their call time. I was like, yes, I will work with all of you on whatever you want. <laughs> that inspires a lot of confidence. And I think that, yeah, getting getting the people that that really challenge you. And, and and another thing I would say just to film students is even if you don't like what a professor has to say about something, listen and then take it or leave it. Because there have been times where I wanted to completely shut out the feedback I was getting from from faculty, and then I and I took notes anyway, kept my ears open, and now I'm looking back. And going, wow, I'm really glad I listened to them. At the time, I thought nah, I don't need that, but then looking back, it's like, ooh, that's very very important. So you know, trying to maintain a humble perspective is it's hard. That's that's really that's that's been another lesson too. But yeah, trusting that they know what they're talking about, or at least can give you some, give you a different perspective. Great. Well, everyone, thanks for tuning in and listening. Hopefully, you pick something up 
with us today that you don't want to put down. You can find Matthew Wilt's Fine Art Photography on Instagram at Willits Film. Check it out. Find me at RK Odin Sun. Never going to change that handle. I love it too much. <laughs> <laughs>